Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Evolver, sponsored by the Alchemist Kitchen. Hosted by Ken Jordan. Like most people, for most of my life, I tended to believe that things happen to me, that I'm a recipient of forces that shape a reality beyond my control, outside of a narrow range of situations where I can apply, you know, some leverage. Then I had wild mystical experiences of oneness that called that belief into question. I started to consider how my perception is intimately linked to the larger web of awareness and saw how dynamic this awareness can be. Thoughts change things in a fundamental way. Once upon a time, for instance, there was no such thing as a dining room table. Then, fast forward a few years, and dining room tables become a thing. Look it up. Our entire existence is moderated by objects and conceptual frameworks that are the pure products of human thought. One year, Pluto is a planet. The next year, it's not. Our thoughts literally transform the cosmos. Okay, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably agree with all of this. But then the question is, just how much do your individual personal thoughts change what's happening around you? Sure, if you have the right attitude and you have a good job interview, you're more likely to get that job. But can a particular kind of thinking, a prayer, or a magical spell get you a lock on that job? Can the right thought manifest in narrowly targeted reality? Today's guest, Mitch Horowitz, insists that it does. As he explains in our conversation, he sums it up with the phrase, thoughts are causative. Your mind, simply by thinking of something with the proper focus and intention, can catalyze the result you want to see in the world. Mitch sees the same underlying dynamic at play in the law of attraction in The Secret in the positive thinking of Norman Vincent Peale, and in the satanic sigil magic of Anton LaVey. They all draw from the same source, the power of intention, highly focused, to manifest change in the world. In his forthcoming book, The Miracle Club, Mitch brings a level of intelligent reflection to the power of the mind to create reality that it hasn't seen since the days of William James. Mitch approaches the subject as both an historian and a practitioner. As you will hear, he's a wonderful teacher with a passionate feeling for his subject. If after this podcast you want to learn more from Mitch, Evolver is offering a three-part webinar, Discovering and Using the Powers of Your Mind, where Mitch will train you in practical, everyday techniques you can apply in your own life. It starts on Monday, September 17th, 2018. Find out more at EvolverLearningLab.com. Mitch Horowitz is a Penn Award-winning historian and the author of Occult America and One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. Mitch has written on everything from the war on witches to the secret life of Ronald Reagan for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Salon, and Time.com. Mitch was the longtime vice president and executive editor 
at Tartar Penguin, a division of Penguin Random House, where he published leading esoteric authors, including David Lynch, Paul Selig, and Manly P. Hall. He's also a bright and entertaining speaker, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you do, too. Sometimes I can't sleep. I have a lot going on. It's hard to process everything that's happened during the day, so maybe I manage to fall asleep for a while, but then I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I simply can't pass out again. I don't like the feeling that sleeping pills give me. There's a kind of grogginess that lasts with sleeping pills, a heaviness that messes with my day. So that's just not an answer for me. Evolver is the proud parent of the alchemist's kitchen, which we describe as a botanical dispensary devoted to the power of plants. We have herbalists on staff, trained and experienced herbalists who know what they're talking about. And when I asked one of them about this, she recommended a dream elixir from Anima Mundi. It's a liquid. You take a teaspoon or two on its own, or you add it to a tea. It's kind of sweet and has a smooth taste. And I found that it made my nights go more easily. It has a gentle, almost caressing effect that's not like any pill I ever popped from the drugstore. Anima Mundi Dream Elixir is an organic blend of a number of herbs used by cultures around the world to address insomnia, promote deep sleep, and encourage lucid dreaming, chosen specifically for the restorative properties on the hypothalamus, a pearl-sized control center in the brain that directs the body's most important functions. It includes ashwagandha, passion flower, kava kava, skullcap, blue lotus, and more. You can find Anima Mundi Dream Elixir on the Alchemist Kitchen website in the Sleep Better section. Go to thealchemistkitchen.com, there's an S in there. And if you have a question about an issue like I did, you can click on the Ask an Herbalist link to find out what herbal remedy might be right for you. Or stop by our spot in Manhattan at 21 East 1st Street and talk to one of our herbalists in person. Say you heard about The Alchemist Kitchen here on the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any herbal remedy. So, Mitch, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to have you on. We've known each other now, I think, easily a decade. Easily. Probably easily. more, as a matter yeah. of fact, yeah. And I've always thought of you as one of the city's real experts in the history of the occult. Well, thank you. With a deep knowledge of a whole range of esoteric practices, spiritual traditions, which you, as an editor at Tarcher for mm-hmm. many years, yeah. you brought books around these topics you know, to many people in the country working with some of the best known writers mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this space. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually, I met you more as an editor. That's and, right. And since then you've become a writer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. writing about these topics. Yes. And really getting deeper in them. Mm-hmm. I assume also partially through your own practice. Oh, very much. Yeah, I consider myself a believing historian. My practice and what I write about are intimately intertwined, very much. You know, one feeds the other. In fact, I almost never write about something unless I'm prepared to dive into the deep end of the pool myself. So what was it that actually called you to this material in the first place? That's interesting. When I was a kid, I always had an interest in esoteric material, but it was on the back burner. And it got fed and nurtured through the Carlos Castaneda paperbacks that my sister would bring home and watching the Maharishi on Merv Griffin and wondering about newspaper horoscopes and where astrology came from, but it was on the back burner. And then when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was primarily into politics, but I felt myself at a total 
dead end. I felt like political publishing was very shallow and dealt with putting mostly a lot of commentary out into the world that was here one day and gone the next. And I got a new job one day at this publishing house that you mentioned, which was then known as Tarcher Putnam and is now Tarcher Penguin. Uh, Actually, now it's probably some other permutation as it changes corporate hands. I'm no longer there. But anyway, I spent uh, about 20 plus years there and discovered at this metaphysical publishing house a wealth of literature on the backlist that went from being an incidental interest to a deeply personal interest. And oh, I so remember, that's great. So oh, this, yeah. it was actually through your job. Absolutely. Working with the books. Absolutely. And looking at the backlist. Absolutely. I was ignited by the ideas. I was just ignited by them. I remember in particular, one night I was flying home to New York City from Denver, and I was on a flight, and I was reading a manuscript called The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a very occult, mysterious, nine-pointed star that some people use as a typology of personality. It comes out of Gurdjieff. It comes originally out of Gurdjieff, and it's branched into different directions. Gurdjieff didn't use it as a typology of personality. He used it more almost as a map for the rhythms of life. But some people started using it in a psychological dimension. And I was reading about what... I identified as my type on the Enneagram pattern, on the Enneagram trestle board. And it was so accurate, and I felt like I was standing so naked behind this material that I realized indelibly at that moment on this flight from Denver that there was this stream of occult information entering our world, that there was another information stream. And that was probably the moment at which I really began to dedicate myself to this material. So when you had that realization, up to that point... Would you have considered yourself to be a spiritual person? I considered myself spiritual, but I probably would have identified myself as an ultra-liberal Jew, as somebody who was ecumenical, who was interested in different aspects of spiritual thought. But the notion of really searching for wisdom very, very deeply in occult or esoteric or mystical strains of thought as a life long vocation and as an intimate vocation, that hadn't dawned on me. But I had, at that point, gosh, I'd been through like five years of psychoanalysis and I had done all kinds of things spiritually and therapeutically to try to gain insight. And that one moment sitting on that airplane reading this manuscript, which was written by a woman named Sandra Maitre, and I identified myself as a six on the Enneagram scale, which is the fear-based type, or it's like fear, courage, you know, it's a double yin-yang as, as most typologies are. And I felt I gleaned more information about myself at that moment, seated there on that airplane than I had in five years of psychoanalysis. Never left me. And from that point on, did you look for a practice for yourself? Oh, I did. Yeah, I was interested. At that point, I grew interested in all kinds of ideas, but you had mentioned that the Enneagram had its introduction in the West through the great spiritual philosopher G.I. Gurdjieff. So uh, I suppose that experience probably led me within a couple of years to finding my way into the Gurdjieff work, and I remained within a very traditional branch of the Gurdjieff work for about eight years or so. Did you get invited into a secret little group that was meeting on a weekly basis Something you could like never that. tell anybody else about? You yes. Know, told, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> you Wait. could put it that way. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I found a tremendous, tremendous amount there, and I have nothing but good things to say about the Gurdjieff work, but for me, there was a time to leave, and I found my time to leave about eight or nine years into it. So, so here you are, you're surrounded by these books, mm-hmm. you're surrounded by the, the practice, mm-hmm. now you're bringing it into your life. Mm-hmm. 
you're getting more curious about, I'm assuming, the history of these ideas. Yeah. So at what point did you start to think of yourself as an historian? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I had left writing behind when I was in my 20s and 30s, partly because I felt I had nothing to write about. I didn't want to be some guy bopping around New York City writing book reviews for The Village Voice or what have you, you know. And I felt like politics and political commentary and cultural politics had enough people in that pool already, and there wasn't a need for one more. But I began to think about metaphysical experience and history as something that I wanted to write about when I was in my late 30s. And I began to realize that some of the figures I was encountering, the occult scholar Manly P. Hall, the medical clairvoyant Edgar Cayce, the mystic Carlos Castaneda, even a figure like Gurdjieff, were misunderstood in mainstream letters. And I discovered very quickly a great deal of joy in writing about these figures. And that's basically what led to my first book, Occult America. It struck me that movements that don't write their own history get it written for them, often by people who are completely outside the spectrum of values that these movements embrace. Hence, they get misunderstood. So all the time, one sees believing historians writing histories of the psychedelic movement, the Zen movement, the beat movement, new religions like Mormonism and Christian science, transcendental meditation. And I thought at that time there was no one writing popularly on the history of the occult and sort of redeeming some of these figures who were so misunderstood in mainstream letters, if, if, if they were acknowledged at all. And so that's what I set out to do. So when you say the occult, what does that word mean to you? Very simply, it means an unseen dimension of life, whose energies or forces can be felt on us and through us. It usually connotes a religiosity that is outside of any mainstream or widely accepted congregation. It's always been with us. It really describes a radically ecumenical spirituality that's part of no accepted doctrine, dogma, congregation, community. And the term occult itself is from the Latin occultus, meaning hidden or secret. It's a term that came into use during the Renaissance when Renaissance scholars were looking for a way of describing primeval spirituality from Egypt and Greece in particular, the various mystery religions. And they had no name for these things. They had no lexicon, no vocabulary for these things. So they called them occult or hidden. So when you use the word occult, you're thinking of it kind of as a subset of spirituality more broadly? Well, I suppose I think of it as a dramatically nonconformist outsider spirituality. It's loose and it usually involves some sort of a personal journey, personal initiation. It's rigorously experiential. So somebody who's taking ayahuasca, somebody who's experimenting with tarot cards, somebody who is into various mystical forms of Christianity, I would be comfortable saying all of these people are into the occult insofar as it's an outsider spirituality, an outsider search that belongs to no one but the individual. That's interesting because when I think of the occult, I usually think of magic. Magic is a huge part of it. So for me, the occult yep. is kind of colored by this idea of you know, the will. Yes, yes. I can make something happen. Yes, By yes. bringing in spiritual forces. Yes. And, you know, in the in the psychedelic world that I also kind of, you mm -hmm. know, frequent in my own quirky way. Yeah. You rarely hear those people talk about the stuff they're doing as occult. Yeah, yeah. Right? That, you know, plant medicine, plant yep. spirit medicine, shamanism, yep. usually in the kind of, the, 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 the way that, 
in the popular sense, the way people use these words, the occult doesn't usually come up mm, yeah. in that context. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting thing because, and I want to talk a little bit more about this, you know, yeah, in a few different yeah. from a few different angles. But right, right. The role of the will. Right. The right. role of desire. Right, right. In spirituality, it's a hot topic. Yeah, yeah. It's a very hot topic, and you've you've opened up a lot there. Years ago, I was probably more apt to associate the occult with different forms of inner knowing, mysticism, an inquiry into knowledge that was accessible through esoteric devices like astrology or tarot or divination or seances or channeling or some form of mediumship. Some and for, intuition, large intuition. intuition but in intuition heightened, you know, intuition with a deep determination at the back of it in terms of something the individual wanted to accomplish, which is apropos of your mentioning of the will, the exercise of the will through magic. And magic, with a K, is also very much part of my outlook. Ceremonial magic and various late ancient forms of magic, like hermetic magic, are more part of my outlook today than they probably were 10 years ago. And apropos of your comment that people who are engaged, say, in a search through ayahuasca or medicinal mysticism, plant mysticism, nature mysticism, might not see themselves as engaging in the occult. The reason I use the term so broadly, and, and, and this kind of opens up a big, broad window, and in some ways a disputatious window, is that I view the spiritual search as a whole, as imbued with magic, and as involving the search for power. I speak more in terms of power than I do in terms of will. Aleister Crowley and some of the first generation of modern ceremonial magicians spoke in terms of will. And I have no problem with that word, but my language is power. And I really do believe that the spiritual seeker, whatever path he or she finds himself on, including those who are part of mainstream congregations, including evangelical congregations, including Catholic congregations, all the way over to the deep-seated ceremonial and magic-oriented circles that are associated with a cult, they're all seeking power. Couched within, thy will be done is my will be done. That is, I contend, a basic of the human situation. And I think we on the spiritual search should be, frankly, more blunt and more open about that. Now, some may listen to this and say, no way, Horowitz, you've got it completely wrong. You know, I'm trying to dissolve the small self in favor of the larger self. Some people might look at me and say, the problem with him is he's actually a practitioner of black magic because he's into elevating the small self. I don't draw lines anymore at this point in my search between the so-called small self and large self, between the inner and the outer, between attachment and non-attachment. I do believe that there's a physical and non-physical dimension to life, and I do believe that what is basic to every human search, what binds every human search, whether we know it or not, is the search for power. You're looking at me as if you're, there's so many different there's directions. So much there. There's so many different directions I could go I'm in. Making with this. and losing friends by the moment. Oh no, no. Well, that, I'm, but this is great. Well, so the first thing about power. Let's go back to. Let's start Please. with power. Yeah. You know, coming from a political perspective. Yeah. I love the way that you approach this because it's really talking about the occult slash spirituality as a form of personal empowerment. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So for so many people who are feeling disempowered in yep. the society in which we live today. Yes turning to a spiritual practice in order to gain your power 
in order to yeah. actualize a self, yeah. whether it's lower self or the higher self, yeah. it's still yourself in a in a political way. Yeah. I endorse that one hundred percent. Yeah, I endorse that one hundred percent. That resonates for me. Yeah. yeah, you know, a friend of mine was describing to me how some people on the ultra right have been engaging in keck worship, and some of them, there's a. I'm sorry, keck worship. Oh, a, a, a keck being sort of a well, keck was a Egyptian god of chaos who might be associated with the underworld. The infamous meme of Pepe the Frog is an expression for some on the ultra-right of this ancient Egyptian lizard-like god, Kek, who is supposed to be the keeper of chaos and the purveyor of chaos. And some people on the far right, the ultra-right, are engaged in Kek worship. And I had a friend who has entered that world more, I would say, as a, as a visitor than as a resident. They're doing keck ceremonies? Oh yeah, for sure. Sometimes individually, not necessarily in any kind of a group or organized way. Man, I am so out of it. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh sure. You know, I I mean, you and some of your listeners are probably familiar with the fact that during the campaign, the far right was using this figure of Pepe the Frog as a meme. And some of them would talk about it as meme magic. And they felt that the more they inculcated the image of Pepe the Frog onto chat boards and and throughout social media, the more they were promulgating a kind of white supremacist theme. Uh, it was that you know, yeah that scene that was clear, but that was going on in the alt right world. But it didn't feel very occult necessarily. Not so. necessarily, but there's a fraction of those folk who see Pepe as a sort of stand-in for the ancient Egyptian god Kek. How did that happen? Oh my gosh. They, Is that a recent thing? It, it, it's, it's, it's a very recent thing, and there's it's actually very disputatious how it happened. There are all kinds of, we could do a whole dialogue on that alone, but there are all kinds of arguments as to where and at what point did the far right begin to embrace Pepe, and who were the first people who began to associate Pepe with with Keck. Now, is this in Gary Lockman's book about Trump? Yes, you'll find some of that in Gary's book, Dark Star Rising, which is an excellent book. Which you edited. Which I edited. In fact, that's the best book on this overall territory that you can find. Yeah, I skimmed that chapter. Oh, it's, a, it's very good. <laughs> you'd enjoy it. Anyway. There's other parts of that book I read really closely. It's a wonderful, oh, you'd enjoy wonderful it. You know, book. So yeah. some of the folks on the far right were engaged and are engaged very directly, usually on an individual basis, in Keck worship, Keck K-E-K, Kek being the ancient Egyptian god of chaos. And some of them felt, for example, and this was a view that was out there on the ultra-right, you might recall that during the election, on a very hot summer day, Hillary Clinton was here in town in New York City attending a 9-11 memorial. And she had to leave because she was overcome with a little bit of heat frustration, and she stumbled as she was getting into her SUV. There were people on the far right who were praying to Keck for some sort of episode that would expose Hillary as being in poor health, which was just this piece of of false gossip that Trump was putting out there. But the Keck worshipers on the far right were praying for some manifestation of this false rumor that Trump put out there. So Hillary stumbles getting into her SUV, and there was great cheer and euphoria within this fraction of the far right that was engaged in Keck worship because they felt that was the fruits of their worship. Now, the point of this story uh, is to say that although I am deeply and diametrically opposed to the views of all the people in that world, 
I maintain that dialogue and I maintain that line of communication because I do believe that there is a non-physical dimension of life. I do believe that the individual can engage in veneration of ancient gods or saints and things may very well happen. And I want to hear from these people on the ultra-right who felt that they had such a powerful experience with Keck worship, not because I share their goals, I oppose their goals, but the methodology is interesting to me apropos of what you were just saying. If someone feels politically disempowered, why can't that individual engage in magic on his or her own terms and he or she might find something incredible? Only the individual will know. Only the experimenter will know. So do you think that the Keck worshippers actually, through their praying, Mm. through their calling in, through their conscious manifestation, something that might have hit Hillary and helped her stumble? It's possible. I've engaged in worship of ancient gods like Mercury, for example. And it's been a powerful experience to me personally. I do believe, I believe in petitionary prayer and I believe petitionary prayer is limitless. You can pray to God, you can pray to Satan. I'm opening up a whole other topic now. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you, can, you can make a petition to saints, to Keck, to any of the ancient lexicon of gods. And I, I have a pet theory, which your listeners are perfectly willing to test out if they feel like it. My pet theory is that all of the names of these gods, all of the names of the various saints, all of the names of the, the, the deities that run through Western and Eastern life, they're all parabolic names that humanity over many, many generations has placed upon different uh, ethereal energies, let's say, different extra physical forces. You know, somebody this morning was asking me, do I think Satan is a a literal personified figure? And the answer is no, although I do believe there are forces that humanity has labeled and mislabeled, satanic, and that that's a parabolic name that we in the West use. Uh, One of our brothers or sisters in the East would have a different name. But the point is that I think that some of these parabolic names do become portholes and passages over the course of generations or centuries. And my pet theory, which your listeners are welcome to test, in fact, they can do it right now, is this, that some of these ancient gods, let's take Mercury, for example, have been woefully neglected by humanity. Mercury used to be at the center of worship in the Hellenic world, at the center of worship. So what if, what if, maybe the name that has been given to the energies associated with that god, communication, commerce, art, has been neglected, has been neglected. And maybe a prayer or petition to that god can be uniquely powerful for that very reason. So why don't you get on your bike, go over to Grand Central Terminal where there's a magnificent Beaux-Arts statue of Mercury out front, and why don't you say a prayer and say a petition and find out what happens, find out what happens. To pray for the end of fake news. Pray for the end of fake news, or you know, pray for something that you can immediately measure that you want in your life and be unembarrassed. You know, stand there in front of Grand Central. This, I guess, is one of the wonderful things about New York City. You can behave like a lunatic on the street and nobody cares. Oh, no, no, you'll get rewarded. Uh, Yeah, you'll get rewarded, (laughs) actually, right. be elevated. Mm -hmm. So go and stand in front of Grand Central, as I have, and, you know, behave like a complete lunatic. Look up, move your lips, speak out loud. You have prayed to Mercury? Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing is delivered to the easily embarrassed. (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> the book of Revelation warns against being lukewarm. And mm -hmm. that's another way of putting it. Don't be lukewarm and don't be easily embarrassed. You're doing this for the good. You're doing it for a personal experiment. I used to go and pray to a base relief of Mercury in Soho. And there was this lovely woman who sat outside the building where the base relief appeared selling newspapers. She didn't speak any uh, English. She was from Latin America. And we would smile and say good morning to one another. And she thought I was a complete lunatic, but I never seemed to bother her. So my point is, be unreserved, be unembarrassed. This is the right kind of disinhibition. Go wherever you feel like going or do it in the privacy of your home. Worship Mercury in some heartfelt, sincere way. If you're an artist, if you're a financier, that's your deity. And see what happens. It's just an experiment. So you feel you have a relationship with Mercury? Uh, yes. It's, it's that at this moment is not my primary commitment, but I, I went through several years where that was a very deep felt, very private commitment. And it's funny that we're talking about this now, because just this morning I was thinking about getting a tattoo of Mercury on one of the few pieces of space I have left. <laughs> and, uh, there, there, there's um, not a lot of real estate left there for Not sure. a lot of real estate left, but we'll find a way. Um, so I go through different phases where I, I, I never jettison or discard anything, but I'll go through a different phase where one thing may be emphasized for certain period of time or period of years. So for me personally, Mercury worship was emphasized. And I, I thought for a period of time and may revisit this in creating a kind of reconstructed um, religious cult, if you will, around Mercury. And I, of course, use the term cult in a benign way, not in the negative way that it gets used colloquially today. And uh, who knows, as a result of this podcast, I may revisit that. So it could be a study group. Could be a study group, could be a worship circle, could be a magic circle. But I think that there's such opportunities there. And I think part of the reason that the ultra-right, uh, at least in their experience, has had success with their Keck worship is that this is a very obscure god in the Egyptian lexicon. And how they came to it is is still an object of contention, but came to it they did. And I think they felt a certain exclusivity. I think they felt a great deal of energy and promise and possibility around Keck worship because no one else was doing it. I'd pay attention to that. In your new book, you talk a little bit in The Miracle Club. Yes, yeah. You talk a bit about, which is part of the whole positive thinking movement. Yes, yes. Calling immaterial success, mm -hmm. wealth, yes. money, yes. as part of a spiritual practice. Yes. In the context of a spiritual practice. Yes, yes. For some folks, I, that raises yeah. all kinds of questions. I do understand that, yeah. When you're praying to to a god of that yeah. nature, you find a relationship to a being of that sort. Yeah. You start to feel a personal connection. Yeah. Right? Is it cheating in some way to be praying for your own material success? Is right. there something kind of off about that? That's the question that I wrestled with and that many seekers wrestle with very deeply. And that's been one of the perennial questions in the spiritual search. If I'm praying in effect, thy will be done, aren't I asking that the small I be dissolved in favor of something larger, greater, more universal? Or aren't there within me and all of us many eyes? And who's the one you know, who's asking and what are they asking for? But at this point in my search, and today I'm 52, not today, this is not my birthday. <laughs> I always say today colloquially, and people think, oh, happy birthday. But um, at this, I am 52 years old now. And so I've been at this search of mine for a while, and the place I've come to is this. I do feel that the material is a wholly 
legitimate, vital, necessary part of life. And I do feel that the individual seeker will never really be happy unless he or she feels a deep-seated sense of accomplishment. I do think that we are made to be generative beings. We are made to be productive beings in the fullest sense. And that whatever your desire is, whether you're an artist or whatever it is you do, you do have an internal obelisk by which you measure your progress. And I would say that's valid. Embrace it. Don't run from it. And if you want to ask whatever higher being to whom you're praying for, whatever it may be, your material well-being, whatever it is, nothing should be excluded from that. And I think that material success, ability, personal agency are a part of life, as natural as the food we eat. When you say nothing can be excluded from it, though, I mean, you can open up the possibility of like, man, I just want, I, I want to be like, what's the, now I'm slowly spacing his name out, Paul Monford? How do oh, you say it? right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. It doesn't mean that one is at liberty from other laws and forces. I mean, if you're, if you're that well, guy, like, for I, example. Yeah, I need eight houses. Right. I need a million dollars of, 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 of beautiful clothing. Right, um, right. And I'm going to, you know, do yeah. whatever I need to do in order to maintain that. I'm it's gonna, a fascinating you know, question. I'm going to sell my soul to Donald Trump. And that's right. These, uh, yeah. And he did. And he did. And look what he got. You know, uh, he got his eight houses. He got all those fancy suits and so on. And now apparently he's going to prison. Right. So then where do you draw the line? So That's this is the real wonderful question. question. So like, how do you know? Yeah. How do you know when you're like going, okay, maybe that's a bit over the top. Right. That question is one that concerns anybody who's thoughtful, who's involved in ceremonial magic, for example, because a lot of ceremonial magicians will tell stories that they have asked for something and they've gotten what they asked for, but at terrible consequence. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes they get what they ask for and the consequences are benign. The great Zen thinker, although he was so much more than that, Alan Watts, would frame that question to students. And Alan, he had such a gift for putting things in very plain terms that opened up onto really very deep universal questions. He would say, for example, suppose you could marry the woman of your dreams. Would you like to do that? And of course, the various students would say, yes, yes, of course. And then he would say, well, what about her mother-in-law? Uh, what about your mother-in-law? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about her, her, her mother. And then, you know, students would giggle. And then he would deepen the question and deepen the question and deepen the question. And as you're alluding to, point out how the attainment of this dream could be fraught with so many dangers and difficulties. And I would say that is part of the deal that we strike with life. These are dangerous, dangerous waters. And I do think it's an profoundly important that when a person venture into magical waters, he or she have an ethical code uh, at, at his back. And that ethical code can take many forms. That can be the form of an ancient religious text like the Beatitudes or the Bhagavad Gita. I wrote a piece recently at the website Medium called Satan's Honor Roll, where I said that people who operate on the left-hand path, sometimes called Satanism, sometimes called by other names, but who are on a path in which they are blatantly concerned with the enactment of their will, with their will being done. They, I do believe in most cases, have a code of honor and they should pay attention to that code of honor because when you're venturing into those waters, do you want to become Paul Manafort? I mean, you're asking a very, very pertinent question. I think everybody has respect 
personal responsibility for having an ethical or honorable code. So when you say that people have an honorable code, is that a conscious awareness or is it something that's a deep thing that you know in a visceral way? You kind of, I mean, most people basically know what's right and wrong. Most people do basically know what's right and wrong. And I think that- But the, you can talk yourself out of it. <laughs> you can talk yourself out of it. I mean, to me, the basics of right and wrong really come down to not doing violence against another person, which means really not, I don't necessarily mean physical, although it can encompass the physical as well, not violating another person's capacity to seek his or her own sense of self-potential, not knowingly misleading or exploiting another person, not lying to another person for naked self-gain. I think that that's the basics of my code. Do you feel that your code or your relationship to it has changed in the years since you began to explore Definitely. this occult territory? Definitely. In what way? I used to be afraid of asking for material and personal things, as you were just suggesting. And I have come to feel in recent years, particularly in the past year, that that fear needs to be jettisoned and relaxed. There are dangerous waters, you're absolutely correct, and the individual has responsibility. But we, we, we swim into dangerous waters whenever we pursue something we want, when we move to a new home, when we take a new job, when we pursue a, a sexual liaison or a new relationship or what have you, or even when we have a kid. You know, One never knows, am I gonna be a good parent? Am I gonna do a good job? What's he going to tell the shrink in 20 years, you know? So we're always swimming into those waters, you know? It, it's heightened with magic because so things can happen quickly. Yeah, right. So what was the shift for you? When did you begin to feel it was okay to ask for these things? Yeah. You know, I think probably it was about, this is, you know, it's so wonderful. Your question calls up something very specific. I would say... About 18 months ago, I was asked to write a forward to a book called The Black Arts by a British historian named Richard Cavendish. And I, I, it was the 50th anniversary of the book. And I thought to myself, um, I don't know how I feel about this book. I had been aware of the book for a long time, but I, like many people, had a little bit of a problem with Cavendish using the term black arts in his title. And as I reread the book, Cavendish, I found, made the case in this book that as he put it, we're, we're really, we're all black magicians in the sense that we're entering into the spiritual or the occult search with a deep-seated sense of personal want and personal gain in mind, whether we acknowledge it or not. And he said, we must be blunt about that. And, and certainly the original progenitors of magic in the Western world were blunt about that. And as I began to write this forward to his book, I came to come to grips with his point of view. I came to honor his point of view. I came to feel that his point of view was correct and was accurate and described something about me. And then later, later in the same year, I came across a book called A Culture by Carl Abrahamson, who is a wonderful occult writer and thinker and philosopher. And Carl, who's a dear friend, worked for many years with Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. And I used to think of Anton as just a showman and just kind of a huckster in a certain sense, but he was so much more than that, although I, I don't think he would be offended by those labels either. <laughs> but Carl dedicated a chapter in his book to Anton's career, and he made the case that Anton really did have a very finely worked through philosophy of human nature, magic, mysticism, the search. And Anton's point of view was very much like Cavendish's, although I would say even amplified. And as I rediscovered Anton's work, or rather discovered Anton for the first time through Carl's book, 
I began working out all these things for myself, including my own deepest sense of self-honesty, self-scrutiny, what I wanted, what I was about, what I was asking for, what I was looking for. And frankly, I think over the past 12 months, I came to the feeling that the spiritual search gets the search. And I think that the whole human quest to live well gets diverted, gets sidetracked, gets muddied, gets rendered murky by an over-distraction with the idea of whether I should or shouldn't be self-seeking. Being self-seeking doesn't mean disrespecting others or doing violence or jettisoning ethics, but I think that acknowledging being self-seeking can open up so many possibilities for a person that might have been closed before. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Being self-seeking can mean different kinds of things. Yeah, right. What I'm thinking about, wondering about, is how you deal with unconscious impulses. Mm. Things that are working below the surface. Right. That may be strong desires, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily to your benefit. Yeah. That can take over and drive you in a certain way. Whereas another way of being self-seeking is to uh, focus on clearing out, say, lower vibrational or darker impulses, understanding them, whether it's through therapy or yeah, through some yeah. ki- any kind of you know, spiritual, mystical practice, all these things can work together really well, too, as, as, as a way of bringing attention sure. to that stuff that's under the surface sure. that's driving you in a way that you don't even notice. You don't even see how it's dominating you. Right, right. right? So that's where that question about the will yeah. can come up. It's, it's a question that I think humanity always has to wrestle with, whether in a magical realm or in a more quotidian realm. Of course, Jung wrote and thought about this in terms of the shadow, discovering the shadow, integrating the shadow. I think that what a person... Oh, sorry. You know, if I may, I set an alarm on my phone every day at 3 p.m. to pray, and I'm doing a 30-day prayer for a woman named Crystal Mason, who was arrested on charges of voter fraud and is facing a felony charge. This is what goes on in Trump's America. Crystal had been in prison for tax fraud. She was a felon. She served her time. She got out of prison. Forgive me for diverting us. She went to vote. And in the state where she lives, ex-felons are not permitted to vote. She didn't know this. So she was arrested on a felony voter fraud charge. And she's facing the potential of more time in prison. It's absolutely outrageous. It's a complete perversion of everything that we claim to stand for. And so I'm I'm doing a a 30-day prayer for Crystal every day at 3 p.m. So anybody who's listening who wants to join in, every day at 3 p.m. Eastern time, uh, I'm praying for Crystal. And this is a person who I don't consider anybody a felon. She's an ex-felon. You know, she served her time. She came out of jail. 
she paid for, for, for what she was accused of. And all she did was try to go to vote innocently and was found that she was committing, supposedly, committing uh, voter fraud just by trying to vote as an ex-felon. That's and terrible. It's criminal. It's simply, we have, a, it's, we have a criminal system apropos of voting rights today. So anyway, that was the noise that went off from my phone because every day at three, I, I pray for Crystal. So I'll consider this exchange part of that prayer and I'll ask anybody who feels like it to please join in. I'll join you. But, but you were asking this very pertinent question about how we don't get waylaid, diverted, hurt by the dark side and how we don't hurt others. And I think the dark side should be embraced. I think that our wants and needs are legitimate wants and needs, although if we're unaware of them and if we pursue them without awareness of how they affect other people or maybe how they violate the mores of a community, they will hurt us. So there might be wants and needs that we have to come face to face with that we're unable to act on because they're going to cause harm or damage to someone else or bring problems to us uh, and, 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 and get us jettisoned from the community that we might want to live in. So the individual has to work on these things. But I think for the most part, I think desires are, are sacred and desires should be honored. But we don't live in a vacuum and relationships are as basic to life as desires and we have to honor relationships to others. So I can't steal from you or I can't commit some act of violence and and just, you know, expect that I'm going to get some sort of approbation for that. You know, that's going to result in harm to another person. Uh, uh, probably um, my excision from a community that I want to be part of. And we have to balance these things. You know, you can't, you can't act on everything or you need to find an alternate way of acting. And the alternate ways might prove extraordinary. So I think people, people have a profound responsibility to know what their desires are, to face them, to act on them, but to act on them in ways that are not in a vacuum and that don't violate what is probably the first principle of life, which is relationship. We cannot function alone, and we know that as a fact. So praying for Crystal could help to release her from prison? Well, uh, she hasn't been sentenced, but, but she's, she's facing legal proceedings right now. I believe the answer is yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. You know, I think that we have to see that there's some actionable response from what we do, or I'm not sure what we're engaging in. I do believe that thoughts have a dimension that extends beyond motor functions and cognition. I do believe in the basic premise of the positive thinking movement or the law of attraction, the secret, whatever you want to call it, which is that thoughts do have some kind of a creative, formative quality that go beyond the ways that we ordinarily use thoughts. And it's, it's, it's funny, it's difficult for me sometimes to write and talk about this because many serious folk have very good reasons to have very deep problems with the secret or the law of attraction or the power of positive thinking or all these popular expressions by which the mind metaphysics thesis is known. The aesthetics are terrible, the language is childish, the intellectual culture is abysmal, and yet for all that, for all that, I do believe that those movements have a precious, precious kernel of truth to them. And I'm trying to develop that and bring that out in a mature and serious way in the Miracle Club. I want seekers to feel 
I want everyday people to feel that there is a path there for a reasonable, sensitive person. It's not just for, you know, my crazy Aunt Wanda, you know, who's addicted to New Age literature. My crazy Aunt Wanda is right about a lot of stuff. The problem is it's gotten overlaid with a great deal of childishness, intellectual dead ends, poorly thought through and immature forms of expression. But that doesn't mean they're wrong. That doesn't mean they're wrong. But so just to distill it into a kernel, as you said, what is that kernel? What is the kernel of truth around? Thoughts are causative. Thoughts are causative. Bang. I absolutely believe that's true. It doesn't mean that thoughts are the only thing we live under. I don't believe in one overarching mental super law or law of attraction. We live under physical limits. Mortality alone tells us that. We live under all kinds of of limits and laws and forces. But I think the law of mentation is one, and it's extremely valuable. And it can be very helpful to the individual, just as ceremonial or other forms of magic can. The individual who feels that he or she is at a dead end is never without devices. There may be mighty forces that weigh upon a person's life, political forces, social forces, economic forces, physical limitations. Those are real, they're not illusory. But the law of mentation is also real and not illusory and it can be used as a tool. You added Paul Selig, yeah. you did for many years. Yeah, the channeler, and yeah. The, the thoughts are causative, that is to say the, the, the possibility of shaping the material world through your own awareness, yes. mental process, yes. it's become a big part of the work that's coming through him. Yes, huge. Um, Paul is one of, I think, probably today's most significant channeler. I think that the the channeled literature that's come through Paul Selig, I think, is probably in some ways the third wave of channeled thought that's taking place in the modern West right now. The, 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 there have been many, but one of the most significant and one of the most important was the medical clairvoyant Edgar Casey in the early 20th century. And Edgar, in a way, gave us a lot of the language and vocabulary that we're using right now. Like even the term channel was Edgar's term. So he defined so much of the new age lexicon and vocabulary. The second, I think, was in the 60s and 70s, Course in Miracles, which the Columbia University uh, clinical psychologist Helen Shuckman served as the channel for, and she identified that voice as the voice of Christ. And today, we have Paul Selig, who's a channeler who identifies himself as channeling uh, the guides, these intelligent entities that seem to speak through him and that he picks up in a clear audience fashion and turns into lectures and books. And Paul is a very interesting figure because He's a man of tremendous intellectual pedigree, academic pedigree, literary pedigree. Um, He's had prominent faculty appointments at NYU, Goddard College. He's a Yale MFA. He's not your typical... a choice to pick out of a lineup as who would be the channeler. You know, Paul is a very unusual man. And as a result, and I personally believe that every channeler is part of his or her own transmission in that their values and their language come through. So Edgar Casey, for example, spoke in the values and language of the King James Bible. Helen Shuckman, uh, whose, whose channel transmission was extraordinary, very frequently spoke in therapeutic and psychological language. Paul speaks in contemporary spiritual, alternative spiritual and therapeutic language. And his voice is very much the voice of the present generation. I think the present generation of spiritual seekers find in Paul a tremendously relatable figure. And we're part of this particular generation. I think his work is going to be looked back upon as opening a very important new chapter in in channel literature. 
So I was actually kind of amazed at how much emphasis the guides that come through Paul put on the power of consciousness to shape material reality. Yes. You know, it's really the central belief of the alternative spiritual path in the Western world today. And frankly, it's the central belief of the occult path, the magical path. Like I described um, Anton LaVey's LaVey and Satanism as positive thinking weaponized, basically. You know, the core teaching that you find occurring over and over and over in magic, channeling, all branches of the alternative spiritual search is really the idea that uh, the mind is a builder, to use Edgar Casey's phrase, or that thoughts are causative, the phrase that I favor. You know, there are ceremonial magicians who wouldn't be caught dead carrying a copy of The Power of Positive Thinking. They would think it's gauche and it's aesthetically disgusting and it's contrary to everything that they're about and it's intellectually vacuous and they're working with the exact same ideas. Norman Vincent Peale called it prayer power. They'll call it sigil magic. It's the same idea. So positive thinking specifically, mm -hmm. is, there, is that different, you feel, than just the thoughts are causative? There's a particular thing about it's, if it's, you have a positive thought. Right. It's which not, is the Norman Vincent Peale kind of Right, thing. right. It's not really different. You know, it's different aesthetically. You know, Peale came out of a biblical tradition and he clothed his magical ideas in biblical language that was acceptable to the church going public. My language in many cases would be unacceptable to many parts of the church going public. But I have to be honest with you, Ken, you know, we're essentially working with the same ideas. And sometimes it's an affect that magicians or other folk want to say like, well, I don't get involved in any of that new age mishmash like the secret. It's like, I got news for you. You're basically <laughs> mining the same territory as Rhonda Byrne. You have a different methodology and maybe a different and maybe a, a richer intellectual background, but it's the same methodology. So, so when you're... When you talk about positive thinking, yeah, right. I mean, you know, my association with that is it's Dale Carnegie, right? That's Norman right. Vincent Peale. It's That's like right. you know, just this. And the challenge I've had with it, yeah, yeah, is this this sense that all you got to do is think the right thought, right, and everything changes around. You. Right, 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 right. People feel it's shallow, and and I understand that. And you know. <sighs> One of the ways I suppose I, I part from the law of attraction point of view is, as I was referring earlier, I believe we live under many laws and forces, and there are many things that mitigate, that blend with, that complicate uh, the use of mind metaphysics. And I think one has to incorporate that into one's search. Part of the problem with the field is that it hasn't grown. William James was, a, was an exponent, a critical exponent of this kind of work, and he wrote about it with deep seriousness. But since James died in 1910, very, very few people have written about these ideas, the ideas of mental therapeutics, speaking from a, a spiritual perspective with seriousness, with maturity. I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to reinvigorate that in the Miracle Club because the field contains truth, but also a great deal of childishness. It hasn't grown and we need for the field to grow or it, it does become this very childish expression as, as you were just alluding. So I'm wondering whether you feel that simply having a positive kind of thought yeah. is in itself enough. Uh, sometimes it may be. Sometimes it may be. Sometimes frankly. it may be. Yeah. But say, yeah. if something, you know, really troubling is going on. Oh, absolutely. And I you mean, just so you try to paper it over with like, oh, I'm just going to be positive about this. Right, right. To me, that's kind of problematic. Well, it depends. You know, I think that 
Personally speaking, I think more in terms of deliberative thinking than positive thinking. And I, I do believe that sometimes the power of a passionately felt, emotively charged, and highly directed thought can be miraculous, can be extraordinary. Hence, that's part of what informs my title, The Miracle Club. Such moments occur. Such moments may not be repeatable necessarily, but such moments occur. In other cases, and in many cases, I talk a great deal about sweat equity and work and labor because that's part of life too. I, my metaphysics is, is, is involves clasping the handles of a plow. You know, you have to be working. I have worked mightily for everything that I feel proud of along with using mind metaphysics. So I believe that the two go hand in hand. Yeah, so, you know, when I think of Norman Vincent Peale or Dale Carnegie, yeah. I think of them as relatively conservative figures. Yes, yes right? they were. Yeah. Just like Billy Graham mm-hmm. in well, that same, well, I mean, yeah. I'll more, cite a difference, but okay. I don't want to Oral you. Roberts, okay. Yep. But, you know, the they're generally comfortable with the status quo. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the positive thinking that right. they kind of would put forward right. would be, you don't Absolutely. question the fundamentals. Right. You just... Put yourself in that positive mindset and you're going to go out there and yep. you're going to do well, kid, and you're going to right, right, right. get the corner office. Right, right. And it's not really about challenging the underlying problems that yes. would exist either in society or in your own life that right. may be your biggest blockages That's or that might be an injustice. Very important point. Figures, the great popularizers of positive mind metaphysics who you've mentioned, Dale Carnegie, Norman Vincent Peale, Oral Roberts, I respect all of them. And they were all much more free-ranging in their spiritual thought than people might suspect. But from a social perspective, they were profoundly conservative. And the status quo to them was just fine, just dandy. And if anything, they would have viewed the upending of the status quo as a real problem. And Peale in particular was quite conservative, probably even more so than, than Oral Roberts in some respects. But there's also a counter-tradition and a prominent counter-tradition within the positive thinking world that includes figures like Marcus Garvey, Wallace D. Waddles, who was a Quaker and a socialist, even Elizabeth Cady Stanton. All of these figures I write about in my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement. The movement began with radical roots. It began as an avant-garde religious movement. And as we entered the 1920s, 1930s, 40s, it became more of a status quo movement. So some people are rightly suspicious of it today, feeling that all the figures that you've just mentioned cement the status quo. Socially, they do. Socially, they do. But in the same way that you can use positive mind metaphysics or magic to worship Keck and make Hillary Clinton stumble before getting into her SUV, why can't you use it for other aims as well? I've often said to people, take a book like Think and Grow Rich. Every artist, every activist should read Think and Grow Rich because it's really about concretizing your aims. The title may seem gauche. Forget about the title. Tear the cover off. If you're an activist, if you're an artist, if you're someone who has something that you want to enact in the world, or whoever you are, if you're a soldier, if you're a teacher, if you're a financier, if you're an entrepreneur, Think and Grow Rich is by Napoleon Hill, one of the most extraordinary blueprints and roadmaps I've found from a metaphysical perspective of taking ideas and concretizing them into reality. So use it, use it to your own ends, hack it, you know, be a guerrilla experimenter. Um, These expressions did come from conservative figures, but from a spiritual perspective, they were a lot more free ranging than people sometimes assume. So don't let their pinstripe suits fool you, although they were politically conservative. You don't have to be to use these ideas. Well, I mean, one of the 
powerful things about the notion that thoughts can change the material world mm-hmm. is that we're in a situation where many of us who are sort of in the more progressive spiritual community, yeah. let's call it whatever you want to call it, sure, transformation sure. or culture, whatever you want to call yeah, it, yeah. Uh, are, you know, feel ourselves are in the, we're in the process of creating a new society. Yes, we have to. We have to. Yeah, we have no yeah. choice because otherwise, right. you know, the ship, right. the ship is going under. Right, right. So right. the opportunity yeah. To really change these monolithic structures, right. whether it's fossil fuel energy mm-hmm. or the financial system, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they're capable of being manipulated. Absolutely. Because we can bring a different kind of awareness to them. Right. And right. we can reconceive right. what they are because, frankly, all the societal structures are no more than expressions of our collective thought. Right. Right. And, and magic can be brought to bear on that. Uh, a friend of mine named Miguel Connor hosts a podcast on Gnostic thought and Gnostic spirituality. And Miguel is very well aware that there's a lot of people on the ultra right who are using ceremonial magic or Keck worship. And he's also aware that there are some folk on the activist left who really don't like to think in spiritual terms. They're proudly materialist. And I use that term in a benign way. And, and to them, talk of spirituality and magic is, is diversionary. And Miguel's challenge to them is magic works whether you believe it or not. So if you're unhappy that the right wing is using Keck worship, you can complain about it. Or why don't you counter it? Why don't you do something else? Why don't you worship Osiris? And, you know, no, maybe he'll be more t- powerful. Right. It's time for some divine goddess worship. You know, he's yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's putting it in a, in, a, in a somewhat humorous way, but there's a great kernel of truth in what he's saying. And I like his expression, magic works whether you believe it or not. So don't believe it if that's troubling to you. Tear the cover off Think and Grow Rich if that's aesthetically displeasing or socially displeasing to you. But use it to your own ends. You're approaching it so much through the the lens of thinking, of the mind. Yes, yes, yes. But isn't there also an aspect of energetics? That's an interesting question. I think of there being a very thin tissue of separation between a spiritual act and a mental act. One of the things that I think American metaphysics has really contributed to the spiritual search, and it's been a huge influence on me, is feeling that our minds are an intermediary, a, a, a medium of dispersal, a channel of all kinds of different energies, and that our minds are, in a sense, almost given to us as a capillary of the cosmic or a capillary of the divine. So I think that the mind is, is, is one tool that the individual can use to be in, infused with and subject to and a channel or four higher dimensions or unseen dimensions. They don't necessarily have to use the word higher. There are also ways that can be attained through physicality, through botanics, through other means But my particular means of choice, and I think a means that speaks well to Westerners, has been through mental experience, through through mind metaphysics. The reason I ask is because the mind feels to me like it's only one aspect. Yes, yes. And in some ways, maybe not the most important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're energetically finding yourself aligned in a certain place, Yes. if you're feeling bodily positive. Yes. The thoughts become more positive. Yes, I think that's true. If you're going through emotional issues, right, or physical challenges, yes. They can 
without even being aware of it, puts you into a depressive state. Yes. Where the thoughts are not necessarily so positive. Yes. I and, think you're right. So it's knowing the body mm. and understanding the body yes. can lead you into a way of approaching what your thoughts are right. that may be in some ways more true yes. than what you quote unquote think. I think you're making a good point. And I think that's probably an area of the personal search that I have not fully embarked on yet. And that may lie in my immediate future. I've done the things that people do, yoga, movement, a variety of physical modalities. But I think that the point you're raising is a very good point. And I'm really on this path as a seeker. And I haven't, I haven't uh, dived into that deep end of the pool yet. And that may be what's coming next. Yeah, I'm really interested in how you pursued this work as a seeker mm -hmm. inside of the global conglomerate of Penguin, yeah. Random House, yeah. you know, <laughs> megalith books. Right. right. Well, it's funny, you know, you can sometimes find your own little rabbit warren within some of these corporate complexes and do a lot of good things. It also comes to an end, you know, uh, Random House purchased Penguin. And, you know, the day that purchase came, I knew things were going to change. And that place looks very, very different today. One of the differences is I'm no longer there. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> so it but, ended. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, many people in the book business in that situation, okay, all right, that job evaporated. Yep. You get another book job yep, in sure. another, you know, cubicle somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And you didn't go that route. No, no, no. I was fortunate. You know, I felt at that particular point I was doing enough and was gainfully involved enough in my writing, speaking, television, narrating, audiobooks, so that I was able to make a go of it. And I'm very, very grateful that that's the case. Did you, do you feel like you're a different person than you were maybe 10 years ago when you could stay in the cubicle? Absolutely, I feel much freer today. Uh, I feel more like myself today at age 52 than I did at age 20. You know, I, I, I think that when I was a kid, I was very concerned with questions of financial survival and setting up a life that was sustainable and materially safe. And it was very important to me to, to be practical. Hence, for someone like me, going back many years, going into corporate publishing made a lot of sense because it gave you benefits and a 401k and a steady salary. And all those things are very, very important. And they were very important to me for a long time. Fortunately, hand in hand with that, I was also to develop, I was also able to discover and develop myself as a writer and as an artist. The greatest thing publishing gave to me actually, in addition to material security, which is very important, was rediscovering myself as a writer. And fortunately, the roads intersected at just the right time where one road was ending and another road was opening up and I was able to make the new road open up more fully than it had uh, ever before up to that point. So I'm wondering if in the course of your developing these interests, esoteric interests, mm -hmm. and your own advancement in that work, whether there was a time where within the office hallway, you started thinking, this isn't working for me in the same way. Oh, whether I was ever, ever thinking that? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. The whole time I was at Tarcher, I think that it fed my own sense of experimentation and that there was enough on the backlist. And I was working with my friend Joel Fotinos, who today is assembling a spiritual list to St. Martin's Press. There, he and I worked together so organically and our spiritual interests and co-spiritual growth 
coincided with what other people were interested in so that we could put out books in the areas that we were exploring. So there was never any curb on it. Since I have gotten interested in uh, the left-hand path or the satanic over the past, and I use that term in a very different way than it's used in the mainstream. So I'm. I was going to ask you about that. I'm too, I'm, so I'm, yeah. I'm 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 opening up a, a vista that we might not be able to fully explore the time we have left. <laughs> but I've wondered whether I would have been able to accommodate that within that 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 corporate structure, and it's an open question. I really don't know. I think the answer is yes because I think my colleagues, while they were still in place, sort of enjoyed my experimentation enough, even if they didn't share in it, so that they cut me a heck of a lot of slack. Um, but now it's a changed complexion. So, you know, many of my colleagues are gone, but when my colleagues and I were all there, I think they were willing to hear, you know, okay, what Frankenstein monster have you built now in the basement? And there was a lot of openness at that time. Okay, cool. So I got to ask you. Yeah. Are you a Satanist? Yes. But I use the term Satanist very, very different from how it's used within mainstream life. I make a counter-reading of the Satanic in the Western tradition, and I do feel there really is a very authentic, very identifiable, defensible counter-tradition that can loosely or parabolically be called Satanic, that represents Satan not as a force of maleficence or evil or violence, but a force of rebellion and usurpation and outsider assertiveness, nonconformity, uh, revolutionary ideas. There is a, um, a counter tradition of the satanic that can be read as a story of the Promethean spirit, not as a story of ugliness and war. And one can go back to the book of Genesis and reread, I think very convincingly and very persuasively, the story of Eve's encounter with the serpent as an emancipatory story in which the serpent gives Eve permission to eat from this tree of knowledge that has been erected in this garden of so-called paradise, even as human beings are told they must exercise absolute obedience and not touch this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when Eve does touch the tree, not only does she gain and initiate Adam into powers of discernment, discretion, measurement, creativity, but it also burdens her and Adam with a new world in which, yes, the individual must earn his or her labor and fruits by the sweat of brow. And yes, it gives us a Cain and Abel where there's an act of fratricide, but it may very well be that the cost of discernment, creativity, measurement, in other words, the cost of leaving the garden like a kept plant and stepping into life as a larger creative being, and we are supposed to be created in the image of the great creator himself, the cost of that is herself. friction. Herself. The cost of that is friction. The cost of that is friction. And that may be the, the human malady, that may be the bargain with the cosmic that was struck when Eve ate from that tree. But that's the inception of my reading of the satanic. It's, it's, it's a force, it's an energy of usurpation, of rebellion. And there is a Satan that was written about by the great romantic writers who is just that, who is the outsider, the objector, the rebel, the emancipator, the overturner, the usurper, the artist. And that's my view of the satanic. And I embrace those energies, and I think those energies are quite real, and I think those energies belong to a discernible counter-tradition that exists in Western life. I have an article called 
Satan's reading list. I'm sorry, the devil's reading list that is up at Medium in which I identify some of the core sources in Western life from Genesis on down to modernity that explore this counter-tradition of the satanic, which is the one I identify with. And of course, I also gave a talk on this at Alchemist Kitchen, uh, which is called Satanism, the Dark Alternative, which people can find on YouTube or on Medium, where I've also posted it, and I expand on these themes. The the way you frame it, when you frame it like that, mm-hmm. it suggests that it's the, the satanic or perhaps a darker energies. Yeah that are the emancipatory ones right. against a kind of status quo yes. or structure yes. that would then be one that is of the light? Well, I see it less of the light as I see it of order, one of almost like a Confucian clock-like conformity in a certain sense. If you look at all of human myths in every culture across every civilization, you find great parabolic truths, great spiritual insights, great psychological insights, great insights into human nature. So if we were to read scripture that way, I think that paradise as depicted in Eden is almost hell itself in the sense that the human being is functioning as an automaton and they're told that they will be taken care of, they don't require clothing, everything that they need, all their physical requirements will be taken care of in exchange for one thing, absolute obedience and stay away from this tree, this tree of knowledge of good and evil that's planted right in the midst of the garden. What a a, a peculiar and exquisite cruelty in a certain sense to put this tree of creativity, of discernment, of measurement, of distinguishing between good and evil in the garden, in your very midst, telling you, the human, that this is a paradise, but the exchange of that paradise is never knowing. And that's what the serpent overturns. That's what the serpent usurps. So that's where my perspective on all this starts from. And it's interesting because for myself, and this has nothing to do with, you know, looking at the traditions of various lineages or literatures. It has more to do with this talking with people who are in the quote unquote transformational scene at the moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the sort of similar experiences that we're having, Mm -hmm. right? But my tendency is to see the darkness with the structure, with the status quo. I see, right. I look at, I look at what's happening in Washington. Right. I look at what's happening in the business stru- in the business culture. Yeah. In the financial world. Right. Lot of it's fucked hard. up stuff there. Yeah. And what I am interested in doing, mm-hmm. people that I'm, you know, I kind of find myself as fellow travelers with, are mm-hmm. interested in doing, is bringing light to that. Right. The the work is to discover how to embody the light right. in the self, right. to open right. the heart right. and perceptiveness, right. right? To connect to what is possible yeah. in order to transform that monolithic heavy thing right. that does force conformity, right. but does it kind of in, the, in, in a way that is really about living a, a life with blinders on. Yes, yes. and. Through your own personal work mm-hmm. and through the work of the, the mm-hmm. collaborative, through the group that mm-hmm. is that is holding that light and mm-hmm. holding that love in a certain way, mm-hmm. you work to effectively, hopefully, heal and illuminate that thing yeah. that is the, let's just say, to 
to be a little extreme about it, the darkness that oppresses us. Right, right. right? Well, you know, first of all, in terms of values, I agree with everything you've said. I mean, we are we are of a, of a mind. I might use um, transparency more than I would use the term light. Uh, I don't want to get overly hung up on terms, but I view darkness as, say, the darkness of the womb. Darkness to me is a fertile place from which things are born. I was in Iceland recently, and someone was saying to me uh, that all volcanoes, mythically speaking, are are female because they represent the birth canal. And I really liked that. And I got to to descend into a dormant volcano, and I, I very much felt that energy of what this woman was talking about. And I asked her, who is the god of volcanoes? And she said, it's Surtsia. Surtsia in Nordic mythology is the god of volcanoes. You'll have a lot of trouble finding that term on Google because Surt in, in certain branches of Nordic, including Icelandic mythology, is kind of the god of the underworld. But because volcanoes are considered female, you feminize the term, Surtsia. So she told me that Surtsia is the goddess of the volcano and all volcanoes are feminine. And I liked that because within a volcano, of course, if it's dormant, you have darkness, but then there's this extraordinary explosion and lava comes out and there's creativity. All of Iceland is basically uh, a volcano. It's, it's, it's an eruption solidified and it's such a beautiful, magnificent place. But I don't want to get overly hung up on those terms, you know, or use them in an orthodox way. The last thing we need to do is create a new doctrine or, or catechism, you know, the, you know, Mitch has to use the term dark to mean fertile. You know, <laughs> I, I get it. You know, if yeah. somebody says that, right. you know, uh, Trump is the forces of darkness, that wouldn't be my language, but I can converse with that person because he and I share values. As a model then mm -hmm. for thinking about how to change the self, heal the self, yeah. I wonder about the challenges of working with these darker paradigms. Yeah and how that relates to a healing process. Mm. Well, I have felt a healing process through it because it helped me come to terms with things that I knew I really wanted. And I had to also bring to bear on that the maturity of saying, well, how will what I want fit in with the community that I'm part of or with the household that I'm part of? And one is, is, is called to make very deep and informed choices as to where you expend your energies. Again, I'd say that's true in every area of life. But to me, the satanic demands from one summons one to a really honest and unencumbered coming to terms with what you really want in the deepest sense. And it could be profoundly surprising. You could be somebody who's labored to put somebody else in the spotlight, for example. And then you discover, well, you have these unmet needs of your own of wanting to be in the spotlight. Or, you, you know, there could be all kinds of surprising things that come up. A, a person who's so-called spiritual who says, I don't care about money, may discover that he or she actually really does care a lot about money. Or the opposite may be true. It's just that when you ask yourself in a sustained and mature way, what what do I really want? That can be an extraordinary catalyst for healing and for self-scrutiny, because I think we do repeat things to ourselves almost by rote, and we tell ourselves, you know, I like my friends, I like my job, I want to be in love. You know, do you want to be in love? Do you want to be a parent? You know, what, what do you really want? Are you looking for security? And you equate that with marriage, you know, making that sort of a sustained, unembarrassed scrutiny of your naked wants. I, I really think can be a catalyst for healing. It has for me. Mitch, thank you so much thank for joining you. us today. A pleasure. Appreciate it. This is really thank fun. You. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise.
Are desires sacred, or is the object of the spiritual quest to be free of desire? That's the question that goes to the heart of who you are and how you express yourself in the world. As Mitch describes in this conversation, there are techniques you can learn that will help you find that core thing that you desire, that you want, that you feel is closest to you, who you are, and bring it, call it forward in a way that demands the universe responds to you and organizes itself in order to provide the space you need to actualize that thing that's inside waiting to be expressed. It's a powerful experience. Everybody deserves to have it. And you can learn the techniques that will help you to arrive in that place. So if this interests you, check out this upcoming Evolver webinar, Discovering and Using the Powers of Your Mind. These are three sessions. They start on September 17th. And you can find out more at EvolverLearningLab.com. That's EvolverLearningLab.com. As you discover the ways that you're able to manifest your intentions at a higher level, you start to feel the way that your consciousness is part of this larger web of being, this larger web of awareness. And the more you can bring yourself into sync with that, at a certain point, you also learn you can begin to let go of your desire and allow the universe to present to you what beautiful things it has available to you when you're really fully there paying attention. It's all a larger process of learning and none of us have got it figured out, but that's why we're here. I want to thank our guest, Mitch Horowitz, for being on the podcast, and thank you for listening. You can follow Mitch Horowitz at his website, MitchHorowitz.com, or on Twitter, at Mitch Horowitz. If you like what we're doing on the podcast, please share these with your friends. Let us know by sending us an email at TheEvolver at Evolver.net, and make sure to subscribe on iTunes, on Google Play, on Aidcast, on the podcatcher of your choice. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album, The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.